assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. For the eyes of the world now look into space to the moon and to the planets beyond. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. annual 4th of July Bigfoot Collectors Club special. I am, of course, your barbecue chef, Michael McMillan, and with me always is Pyromancer. (laughs) Bryce Johnson. And typically with us is DJ Riley Bray, but unfortunately he's going to have to mix this episode after we record. He's stuck on the highway and can't make it to the barbecue in time, and we are sad that he's not here celebrating with us but uh every year we celebrate the independence day with strange stories involving u.s presidents and this year will be no different even Mm -hmm. if it is a little bit of a break from past tradition we have an amazing guest with us here but more on him in a moment our season-long event wet hot alien summer continues this week we're covering all things UFO and alien related here on BCC and our Patreon feed, The Other Side. Available right now on The Other Side is our latest release, a Bigfoot Book Club episode, a discussion of Jacques Vallée's seminal work, Passport to Magonia, where he discusses the possibility that aliens, fairies, and demons might all be the same all thing. All one and the same thing. Right? How and can that was you resist actually, that? I got to say, Bryce, we just recorded that episode uh, a couple days ago, and that uh, book kind of blew my mind. Yeah, it was. It's, it's such a great we, uh, read, and uh, I mean, yeah, if you're going to read any of Jacques Vallée's work, I mean, that's that's the perfect place to start, and it's a great way to start thinking about these anomalous phenomena uh, from a different perspective. Than it usual. also 
it also made me feel like we've been right this whole time. <laughs> well, that's what it's really about, right? It's like validating yeah. us. I mean, yeah, yeah, we're vindicated. Yeah, we're yeah. on to something. We're figuring it all out. <laughs> yeah, we got this. So um, if you want to head over to patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club and support the show for $5 a month, you can unlock that episode and so many more bonus shows uh, every month. Okay. All right. Come on. Let's pull up a lawn chair, grab an icy beverage from your cooler. I'm throwing on I'm throwing some dogs on the grill, veggie dogs yeah. for yeah, Mr. Throw Bryce. Veg, veggie dog on there. Guests, for me. guests, we haven't introduced yet. Do, are you a vegetarian or vegan? Uh no. Okay, great. So I'll throw on a little brat for you as well. That Let's get this part. Fantastic. Let's get this party started. Um, our guest today has actually made a movie about some high strangeness involving the president presidents actually that we're going to be highlighting today and we'll be talking all about that film in the second half of the show oh boy oh boy is it tailor made for this audience guys I mean, seriously it's fucking awesome uh bryce would you like to introduce our party guest i would love to Cinema historian Jonathan Rosenbaum called our next guest one of America's <laughs> most This party gifted. got very formal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, come on. Uh, one of America's most gifted independent filmmakers. He's a Pascugenheim fellow, recipient of the Wolfgang Stout Prize, and winner of two Independent Spirit Awards. He's the writer and director of Letters from the Big Man, a thoughtfully executed movie about a woman's unlikely friendship with a Sasquatch that was a New York Times critic pick. But believe it or not, that's not what he's here to talk about right now. He's here to talk about his just-released film, The Eleventh Green, also a New York Times critic's pick, about a respected journalist who uncovers the truth behind the mythology of President Eisenhower's long-alleged involvement in extraterrestrial events. And a film Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times recently bragged, if high enough, you'll like Ike talking aliens <laughs> with Obama lookalike. Please give a warm welcome to my friend and filmmaker, Christopher Munch. <laughs> Thank you so Yay. much, Bryce. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here with you guys. I enjoy your show a lot. I'll tell you what. I was pretty high when I watched that movie last night. I'm not going to lie. And there were moments where I was just like, whoa. I was like, I can't believe somebody made this into a movie. Isn't that amazing? I know. I wish I still smoked weed, but oh, oh. man. It was, it, I felt like, and we're going to talk about this in the later half of the show, but I felt like I literally took a trip to some beautiful alternate alternate dimension and it was awesome yeah that's a really nice response i wish everybody would would respond that way <laughs> so I'm, I'm encouraged going forward here <laughs> um fantastic i mean you're right you absolutely it really is sort of a journey you sort of you sort of buckle in and i mean because like mike said earlier we're talking about this stuff all the time and and for somebody to make a, an earnest film about the subject you're like whoa okay let me uh let me sit down and see what's going on here. Before we get into, uh, Chris, your personal paranormal history, we actually have some pressing... BCC News! <laughs> that, you destroyed that. It's like you I, went slower on purpose. <laughs> I thought it's because I thought we said three Cs. All right, here we go. This is a headline from CBS News. Senators want public to see Pentagon UFO reports citing inconsistent information sharing. Uh, did you guys see this report? 
from this past week. Uh, Chris, did you check out the? Are you familiar with the story? I'm a little familiar with it, yes. Although I didn't see uh, the thing that you're referring to exactly. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to read it to you directly. This is from CBS News. There's no author byline, but here we go. The Senate Intelligence Committee is aiming to regulate a Pentagon UFO program so that the public is better informed of its activities and the country's intelligence branches can more easily share information. The panel said Tuesday that it supports the efforts of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, quote-unquote, officially confirming the program's continued existence, continued, that's a highlight, in a provision to the Annual Intelligence Authorization Bill. The Senate's focus on the program stems less out of a concern over extraterrestrials and more from the threat posed by real-world U.S. adversaries such as China. The program, managed by the Office of Naval Intelligence, is responsible for, quote-unquote, collection and reporting on unidentified aerial phenomenon, any links they have to adversarial foreign governments, and the threat they pose to U.S. military assets and installations. The U.S. is particularly worried about China's espionage capabilities, including use of drones and other aerial technology. (laughs) While recognizing that the topic is sensitive, the senator said that the previous Information sharing and coordination across the intelligence community has been inconsistent and called for a detailed and public report on the program's progress as well as any phenomena it observes. The provision is part of the 2021 Intelligence Authorization Bill, or 2021, which is yet to make its way to the full Senate. If if it passes, the Pentagon will have 180 days to submit a report to Congress. That's almost the amount of time that I've spent in my apartment since the coronavirus (laughs) pandemic. You could be compiling your own report, Michael. I I think I am. (laughs) It's about how many dust bunny babies I've made (laughs) under my bed. Um, so there you go. Now the now Congress is like, let's see the re- see these reports. What do you guys? What does this mean? Uh, what do you guys think this means for disclosure and ufology in general? Well, I think it's good that some politicians are not afraid to to go there, as it were. And uh, uh, it, I think it's yeah, <laughs> I think it's all sort of of a piece with. Uh, the trend that we've been seeing where there's more discussion of this um, publicly. And um, I I think more and more people in elected office maybe are getting the sense that it's okay not to be completely mum on on the subject and that uh, it it isn't necessarily (laughs) a threat to their political careers uh, the way it was once considered to be, I think. It almost feels like they found their backdoor way in. Now that the Pentagon has come out and said, yeah, these are these are real videos that, you know, we're referring to, of course, the videos uh, from 2017 that came out in that New York Times report. Now that the Pentagon has said, yeah, they're real. Now it gives room for Congress to go, OK, we're not going to say that they're aliens because we can't. And honestly, good on them. It, we shouldn't be jumping to that conclusion. Right. I mean, I think we know that there's something strange happening but they can hide behind the foreign threat 
uh, concern. They seem to like couch it in terms of like uh, Chinese drones, which it most certainly is not, you know? So <laughs> exactly. it's like, it's like, they're kind of like, well, taking a half step, which is great, you know? But that is just the mask that they can put in order to put funding towards studying this further. And then also getting some of this information out there, you know mm. what I mean? Cause more at some point it's going to come across, it's, you know, it'll come along that it's not Chinese drones, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But it's baby steps. It's good. It's good. You know, I'm, I think this is exciting stuff and the confirmation that, that they're continuing to still study these UAPs, even though that program was quote unquote shut down. I've said quote unquote three times now. So I'm for, retiring that phrase for the episode. Luis Elizondo always said that he believed when he, when he left the ATIP program, that it was still going on. Um, and, you know, some interesting word phraseology that, that caught my attention was UFO task force or did UAP task force. So um, I'm not sure um, you know, who or what that involves, but that's interesting verbiage. And, uh, yeah, obviously the program has been going on. Um, you know, it, it never really stopped according to Lou Elizondo. So it's really just about where they're allocating that the money left over from the program and where that's going, because we now know that a lot of that money, um, sort of went to Bigelow Aerospace and, and his program over at, uh, um, NIDS uh, studying Skinwalker Ranch, you know, so it'll be interesting to see where, um, you know, some of this program money gets spent. Definitely. And to what degree uh, the findings are, are shared uh, publicly. Uh, I mean, so much uh, what we need so much, I think, is is transparency when it comes to uh, when it comes to open research on this, since there presumably has been so much uh, secretive research done over over time, and and that's certainly the conception that the public has of the whole thing. I think that to whatever degree uh, new research is able to be transparent and accessible to the public will go a long way towards increasing the <laughs> the organic readiness of uh, of people to to hear the information. Totally. Well, and in speaking of organic readiness, I mean, do you think that? This or has anything to do with, or, or I should say, in vice versa, does Space Force, our new Space Force, have anything to do with what's been taking place in, uh, in, in this sort of latest news spillings of UAP phenomena that's taken place over the last three years? I mean, is this why we, we developed our Space Force, you think, or... I, I really, I'm, I wouldn't know, you know, I, but I mean, there has always existed the rivalry between Air Forces, Space Command and, and the Civilian Space Agency, NASA. And now mm. that, you know, the Civilian Space Agency uh, has uh, uh, ceded a lot of the things that it was once responsible for to private industry, um, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about the Space Force. It's, it's, yeah. To me, Space Force just feels like, and look, this is just my opinion, it, it seems like a PR stunt to me. It that, does. That, just, yeah. that yeah. just seems to me like a way that our current administration is going, hey, look, we're doing something fucking cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> and just trying to show, just trying to like do a little dick waving because of the fear, you know, that we all have that like the U.S. is not going to be and isn't the major world power that it used to be. You know what I mean? So I, I feel like that Space Force shit is just 
complete G.I. Joe fanfic. PR yeah, it's almost stuff. like Reagan's Operation Star Wars, where, you know, yeah. his plan was to laser shoot down nuclear warheads. Well, you know, yeah. it never really came to fruition, but it but on paper it was like, yeah, fuck yeah. I, Operation I, Star Wars, you know. I, <laughs> I I really have to say that I think this administration in particular could not care, couldn't care less about alien or extraterrestrial life i really i really think that but that's just my opinion you know Mm. we got a lot of problems here anyway that we need to figure (laughs) out first and they're not doing such a great job of that um okay chris let's talk to you about your personal paranormal history i'm very excited to hear about how you got into this world because based on the 11th green and your uh previous film letters from the big man uh which i both just fucking mainlined over the past 24 hours uh you clearly have got your thumb on the pulse of high strangeness i'm guessing you've got that you must have spent some part of your of your youth just listening to hours of coast to coast i assume i'm very interested and how you got into this topic, and then if you've ever experienced anything strange. Right, sure. Well, I I guess I should say going uh, into it that I don't have an overarching interest in making films about paranormal subjects or anything like that. I'm not approaching it, you know, from that standpoint. But um, as far as the Sasquatch phenomenon, my sort of entry into that was a fairly organic process, I think. And and it took a number of years, actually, um, Uh, Well, to back up, I mean, I started making films when I was a kid in the 70s, um, you know, travel or uh, travel logs, hang glider movies, surfing type films. Hang glider movies? What's a hang glider movie? That's a movie about hang gliders, man. (laughs) Are you, is there a camera mounted on the hang glider or are you looking at hang gliders? I I wasn't that sophisticated. I was, uh, I just happened to live near a glider port. Uh, You didn't like build a primordial GoPro? No, no, not at all. Although I probably could have because I was filming in Super 8 and the equipment was so small then but i started out doing that uh some of my my quote-unquote student work although that doesn't that doesn't really do justice uh to students um wound up (laughs) on uh uh, a student film festival that was broadcast um on the local pbs affiliate and I, i wound up working for that pbs affiliate while i was still in high school and that taught me a lot about uh, just the mechanics of film production, because everything was still done on film at that time. All the locally produced current affairs documentaries and all of the for hire work that the station did for like visiting BBC crews and that sort of thing. So I did that. I didn't go to college. When I was 18, I, I wrote a feature film script that I spent a number of years making, actually. And that was the sort of thing where it was so bad that... <laughs> I kept cutting stuff out of it until there was nothing left, essentially, and, and it, it never saw the light of day. And then I, I did another one like that uh, a few years later that that actually was finished, but it too, fortunately, didn't see the light of day uh, beyond one showing at the uh, independent feature market in New York. So after that, I made another um, small film. Uh, it actually was only an hour in length, so that's why I'm calling it small, in Spain called The Hours and Times, and that mm-hmm. one... Uh, actually did come out. And uh, after that, I made another five or so features. Um, but as far as experiences from my own history that that might have, um, you know, caused me to, to want to deal with anomalous subjects, 
I, you know, I can't say that I really had any, um, but I was interested. I did read some of the classic books in, in ufology. Uh, I think my mother was a member of some sort of paranormal book club because we had a couple what? of cases that were, yeah, yeah. And, and this was all good stuff. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't bad stuff, but I, I had a chance to sample some of that material. I think uh, I, I do remember the interrupted journey by John Fuller because, you know, she had been so taken aback by, by the story. Um, and of course I, that's Betty and Barney, the first book about Betty and Barney yeah. Hill. Yeah, exactly. And that, which I reread many years later, uh, before I started making the 11th green, but still many years later. And what was interesting at that time is that I had seen the re-release of John Huston's film, let there be light, uh, and in it, it depicted the same psychiatrist who was Betty and Barney's Hills, Betty and Barney Hills psychiatrist, at work at Walter Reed Hospital, uh, helping uh, soldiers who had been shell shocked during the Second World War. And it was it was actually documentary footage. It was really quite amazing to see him at work. So that also interested me. And I saw the television movie that was made with uh, you know with Estelle Parsons and and uh, James Earl Jones uh-huh. and, and Barnard Hughes, which which I thought was very good. Um, so as far as personal experiences, though, I, I can't say that I, you know, really had had any, um, although around, you know, 2005, I kind of backed into the subject of Sasquatch, again, something I, I knew absolutely nothing about, um, and started writing a screenplay. And what got me into it actually was was very innocuous. It was just a gift from a friend of uh, a humorous book. I think it was called uh, Me Write Book or something like that. One of these, you know, popularizations of, of what a Sasquatch might write if he were writing. I think I remember that book, actually. Exactly. Was it like a children's book, sort of? Did it have like illustrations of a Sasquatch in it? Yeah, there was some nice artwork. It was actually probably more of a hipster book than a, than a children's book. But that, for some reason, came my way. And at the same time, there was a catastrophic wildfire that had occurred in Southern Oregon and Northern California, which interested me a lot because it sort of focused a, a growing uh, politicization that was taking place in the Forest Service at the time um, in the direction of salvage logging of lands that were burnt in this in this great fire, you know, in a, in a very ancient, interesting wilderness uh, called the Calmeopsis Wilderness. So I wound up spending a lot of time there, and I read a book by David Raines Wallace called The Klamath Knot, uh, K-N-O-T, mm. which dealt with his perspective as a, as a naturalist and, and backpacker in this particular region and his thoughts about Sasquatch, which were uh, not of, you know, somebody with a particular orientation towards paranormal things. Um, so I, I worked on this script for a period of years. And during that time, I met some very interesting people who had had a lot of experiences themselves with Sasquatch, uh, more in the kind of mystical and, and um, psychic end of things, I suppose. And I, I became good friends with a woman in Oregon named Kathleen Jones uh, at the time. She later was known as Kathleen Odom. And she was a very gifted channel, a very gifted trans channel who had had a near-death experience. And uh, prior to that, she you know was a professional woman, uh, very smart, well-educated woman. And after that, she was still smart and well-educated, but she also had this particular aptitude for uh, channeling uh, the words of, of Sasquatch and in, in, in a kind of collective form rather than uh, an individual form. And that's incredible. I was just, I was just going to say, yeah. Can you tell us what a, a trans channel is? 
Well, uh, let's see. Uh, generally speaking, it's somebody who goes into trance, some sort of a trance, whether it's especially deep or or more shallow, and blends with uh, um, an entity that's not physiologically incarnate and is in the form of a sort of guide or gatekeeper or, or what have you, gotcha. and facilitates a certain type of communication from non-physical consciousness. And I guess nowadays there's more a tendency to draw a distinction between channels and mediums. Uh, I think in the olden days, there wasn't that much of a distinction and channels were also generically known as mediums. Uh, but now having known quite a few channels and mediums, I, I think there, yeah, there is more of a distinction or some people are, are more capable in one area than the other. In any case, Kathleen was very capable as far as channeling Sasquatch and also as a domestic animal communicator. So there was an op an opportunity to sort of gauge her efficacy by the work that she did with domestic animals, <laughs> right. you know, and, and whether her observations proved to be valid uh, in the field, so to speak. And so she and I became good friends. And after I made Letters from the Big Man, we actually collaborated on uh, a webcast over the course of several years that was strictly devoted to uh, channeled communication, but it, it kind of expanded to include our discussing other uh, individuals who were having these experiences uh, at close range, who were, you know, often longtime residents of a particular place that was also occupied by a particular Sasquatch. And over a period of time, uh, a period of seeming trust would arise and uh, they would. Um, uh, they would have some very interesting interactions. And some of these people have written books, uh, uh, people like Lisa Scheel, uh, who I think her first book was called Backyard Bigfoot, and then she later moved to uh, uh, Michigan. And mm. um, uh, Lori and Dustin Chandler in, in Georgia have had some, some really interesting experiences. Uh, again, a situation where they had been in this particular location for a long period of time. And, and their interactions were almost in the manner of um, tutelage and, and a particular course of study, almost, you could say, uh, that, that was being offered up to them by the Sasquatch in the form of these mysteries and in the form sometimes of frightening experiences. But usually once they got past that level of it and opened to the reality of, of what was happening, the, uh, the learning kind of you know, made a, an exponential leap and uh, they were able to glean a lot for it. So in any case, I'm, I'm digressing a bit, but it uh, really my, my, my interest in Sasquatch came about very organically and not, you know, a priori uh, as a result of an interest in something very unusual. Although when I was young, obviously like a lot of people I watched in search of the, you know, the old yeah. Alan Lands Landsberg series with Leonard Nimoy. And, uh, I, uh, I had watched a film in the seventies, um, that was made in, in British Columbia, uh, all on location. It was, it was very good. It was released theatrically. It was at the time when this company Schick Sun Classic Pictures was putting out, uh, uh these, these, uh, sort of documentary reenactments theatrically and, and, four walling theaters and people would go and see it in any case. Um, so I, I guess I knew that there was a phenomenon that existed. And I think I always presumed that it was a legitimate one, although I had no real firsthand basis for assuming that. So the, the journey of letters from a big letters from the big man, uh, making it over six or seven years, uh, really deepened my understanding. And then proceeding from that into the webcast that we made over the subsequent several years, uh, also, 
continued to deepen my my understanding. I mean, it's a subject that just keeps pulling you in, it seems like. It seems like your experience is similar to mine. It's like, you know, once you sort of start to inquire about these things, it just, it, it really opens opens you up, uh, for lack of a better term, into like, you know, all the... Uh, all the stuff that, that that's taking place with these Sasquatch and, you know, the habituations that you were talking about earlier. It's, it's fa- absolutely fascinating subject that never ceases to uh, get old or bore me to say the least. Yeah, no, I think that's very correct. And I think uh, to the degree that an individual sort of approaches this from the standpoint of personal growth, you know, and how, how does this impact my personal growth and, 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 you know, opening on a kind of heart level to, the phenomenon really makes it possible to have a, a higher degree of, of engagement with it than simply sort of standing back and trying to observe it on an empirical level. So, Chris, my question for you uh, is that as a child of the 70s, I feel like Bigfoot was like a pretty popular figure in pop culture. Do you have memories of that or were you too young to kind of be aware of big, you know, like on the $6 million man. And, you know, I just feel like he had a real heyday in the (laughs) seventies. No, I think that's, that's very true. Um, as I say, it was certainly on my radar, but I, I never really thought that much about it, apart from watching In Search of and in part from seeing Sasquatch 77 or whatever that movie was called that, that was rather intriguing. And I, But I did, you know, in hindsight, I think I did feel some sort of deep atavistic connection to uh, to Sasquatch for whatever reason. And, and at that time, I hadn't really spent a lot of time in the forest, certainly not, you know, in the remote wilderness that that came much later. So, um, but yes, it, it was certainly part of part of the era. And, uh, um, but I, I really hadn't hadn't done a lot of reading on that subject. And, and I should say that uh, Sasquatch was not a part of my mother's paranormal book club for whatever reason. <laughs> she might have op- she might have op- opted out of the Sasquatch section of it. If if anyone had told her that it was possible that Sasquatch came out of UFOs, she might yeah. be into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, she was more discerning than that. I, I mean, which isn't to say that there isn't an association, but, you know, on paper. I'm, I'm sorry. I've just watched two of your movies, and I'm shocked that you were poo-pooing that idea. <laughs> I'm not poo-pooing it. In fact, I just watched a film recently uh, that came out in which uh, my friend Tom Powell uh, uh, is involved, and he he went to visit the Owl Moon Lab in, in Oregon. And, and that portion of the film actually struck me as as most true because a lot of the acoustical anomalies that they were reporting from that uh, situation uh, coincided very closely with some of the acoustical anomalies that I would experience when I was uh, making letters from the big man. Wild. So UFOs, let's talk about UFOs. Where were they on your radar growing up and how did you decide? And we're going to talk, we'll get more in depth into the movie itself uh in 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 a little bit of the second half of the show but how did you get introduced to the ufo phenomenon other than you know your mom having a couple books on it because you seem like real into this shit based on that movie and maybe that's just good (laughs) research but like if i'm i'm just shocked that you're like kind of a normal guy who made two very like deep cut movies especially yeah, something the you're not telling us here. yeah exactly <laughs> who are you working for chris what do you know i seriously i don't I, i'm not i'm not bob emenager <laughs> um i don't even know who bob emenager is you you were just talking about him on on one of your previous shows yeah, on one of he, your previous 
He was that filmmaker, uh, Michael, who was supposed to get the uh, the UFO footage at Holloman Base, right? He did the film oh, uh, right. yes. UFOs Past, Present, and did I get Past, Present, and, and Future? Right. But the def- the Defense Department never gave him the uh, the Holy Grail of it, of his uh, film that they were supposedly going to give him. They they balked at the last second, giving him. Listen, that. I don't remember anything prior to March fourteenth, two thousand twenty, when I went into this bunker and never came out. Okay, I don't remember. <laughs> Well, that that film of Emmenegger is actually very good. I, I wish that there were a good edition of it, a good edition of it available now, because really, I, I've only seen it as a bad YouTube uh, copy. But mm. it had some. It actually had some really beautiful uh, uh, illustrations in place of the footage that he was supposed to have received. Supposed from this, to have, yeah. Right. <laughs> he was a Hollywood filmmaker, right? I mean, he was yeah. a, he was sort of a big budget producer and filmmaker. And and when he was tasked with this, he was sort of like, why me? Yeah, who's to say? Um, but I mean, obviously, certain filmmakers have had had ties to the the IC uh, over the years, you know. And there there are people that you go, you, you go to, I guess, if you need this stuff. <laughs> but tell, tell us back to back to your UFO uh, sort of where where it started from you and even if that sort of co-connects with with you uh filming the 11th green tell us about that yeah i after i made letters from the big man and concurrently with the webcast that i was making with my channel associate uh kathleen i did a film a short film for itvs um that was the story of an outcast inventor living in a remote part of the southern oregon coast uh, who experiences event an event similar to the tsunami of 1964 that that pummeled Crescent City, and uh, he happens to have been uh, uh, an outcast inventor who was working in breakthrough energy and, and propulsion at, at MIT, and was shut down. So I had become very interested in that topic, and coincidentally, or, or not so coincidentally, I, I found out that I was at the time staying a couple of doors away from the place where John uh, Hutchinson, Hutchinson had moved mm. to uh, after he was living in Vancouver, and he had he had built um, um, uh, some sort of interferometer that was supposed to repel incoming radiation from Fukushima. Uh, this was in the aftermath of of that nuclear disaster. But in any case, so I made this short um, and I had done a fair amount of reading in the field of so-called, you know, breakthrough or free energy. And, and I guess that was my entry point into the topic of, of UFOs and the national security state and the idea that uh, uh, there was, that there did exist exotic technology within special access programs. And that some of this at least might've had its origins, uh, in crashed objects. And uh, it fascinated me that, you know, that a number of really talented inventor, inventors over the years, over, you know, nearly the entire 20th century had come up with some some very interesting devices. And they had this relationship with uh, whoever, whomsoever, the clandestine organization or the, the oil, uh, you know, the oil um, the monopoly man <laughs> whoever we yeah. know he's behind whoever. all of this yeah exactly yeah exactly it's 1932 <laughs> yeah 
the backroom boys, as you called them. The backroom boys or, or Royal Dutch shell or whatever. Well, you know, Royal Dutch shell used to sponsor the shell mileage a thon in the fifties and sixties, where they would hold a competition for these highly fuel efficient devices and, and breakthrough inventions, which they would then promptly, you know, buy up and and (laughs) shell. Yeah, exactly. And if you didn't, if you didn't acquiesce, they, they escalated their overtures over a period of time uh, until it was something you couldn't resist. So I I read a lot of that stuff. I read a lot of Tom Bearden's work, which I know is controversial, but he's, he's a very diligent researcher and he's very good at sort of um, uncovering papers that were written in the 1930s dealing with uh, some exotic uh, device or the other. Um, And so when I started to make the 11th green, one thing that had intrigued me was the urban legend that existed regarding the possibility that around 2008, Boeing Aircraft Corporation had sought to migrate uh, a black world technology into commercial aviation. And this Mm -hmm. had been written about by a fellow named uh, Paul LaViolette, a physicist, Paul LaViolette, uh, who wrote a book called Subquantum Kinetics, um, but who also wrote a book called Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, which is kind of an unfortunate title if you're trying to, you know, have credibility with the scientific establishment. Right. But but it actually is a very, a very well-written book, extremely well-written and illustrated book in which he, he speaks about a number of things, including, you know, the hypothetical Boeing migration, as well as, you know, the alleged uh, uh, incorporation of various exotic technology into the B-2 spirit bomber. And he, in fact, went so far as to effectively back in it, back engineer how this might work. But he also talked about a lot of other aspects of exotic propulsion, like uh, experiments in uh, oh, uh, microwave uh, levitation out at, at Rocketdyne in Simi Valley, <laughs> places like that. I'll tell you what, I've uh, I've experienced uh, some exotic propulsion uh, in Burbank, California, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, I was going to ask, Chris, do a lot of these, I mean, do a lot of these outlier inventors, did, did they ever sort of lay claim to um, sort of where they were getting some of these ideas or, or were these just really super smart guys who are thinking outside the box? I mean, I guess what I'm driving at is they, uh, guys like John Hutchison never claimed to sort of, you know, channel alien material that gave, gave them the blueprints to help them build this stuff. Right. I mean, well, John actually, uh, did talk about how he would get downloads, you know, and, and oh, he wow. would, yeah, he would, he would get from aliens. Well, I don't, I don't know that he gave name and address to like downloads in his brain, yeah, not yeah. computer. Yeah, no, no. Okay. Yeah, definitely. They were, yeah, Listen, they were. In, I gotta tell you guys, we got a full red nerd alert happening <laughs> right now. So I'm just trying to let our audience know <laughs> what exactly you guys are going on about. No, yeah, yeah. Down, downloads, getting uh, getting information from somewhere that's uh, outside privy to your knowledge. Absolutely. You know, did- yeah, yeah. I mean, and certainly Nikola Tesla said as much that he, you know, his his contacts ranged far and wide in in the etheric realms. And uh, uh, yeah, I think abs- that's a really good point. I mean, I think it's absolutely true that some of these people were uh, receiving downloads. I mean, certainly uh, um, Van Tassel, you know, his his plans uh, 
uh, were in that form. I mean, I, I don't believe he physiologically met with <laughs> Venusians in, in Landers. And I don't mean to be laughing because I'm dismissing him, but I think that probably the information that came to him was in a more metaphysical realm than... Wow. Know. It's kind of like, you know, actors are the same way. Like when I shot my IHOP commercial, I don't know where that performance came from. It just... <laughs> yeah. Sort of, I channeled it. That's all I know. Uh, yeah, well, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, go, go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think a lot of writers uh, work intuitively that way um, anyway, yeah. without realizing that they're, you know, being guided or accessing information. I mean, some obviously are more formal about the way they write stuff. I mean, I, I, I had always, you know, I had always... Um, let's see, felt that certain types of mediumistic communication, like the Seth material, uh, I, I held in a fairly high regard. I, I had been very familiar with that. And later in my life, um, Rob Butts, who was uh, the husband of, of Jane Roberts, who produced the Seth material, was a friend of mine. And I had a very high regard for that. And and for the raw material as well, uh, which is interesting from the standpoint of, of ufology and, and the history of, of ufology, because it does cover some of that ground. And the group that produced it was was a really interesting group of three people. Um, so, but on the other hand, I mean, I, I come from a family of scientists. I mean, my father is a who just passed away is a uh, was a, an astronomer and astrophysicist. You know, at, at Caltech during the '60s and was involved in, wow. in the space program and. Uh, he was a principal investigator of the infrared radiometer on Pioneer. So I, I probably inherited some of my interest in imaging from, from him and certainly an interest in problem solving, you know, and, and w wow. which has served me very well. So I, I suppose my, my makeup is, is a combination of things, really. Did, did he ever mention those taboo three letters UFO? Not really, not really. I, I didn't have a conversation. But interestingly, you know, later in his life, when his memory was not so good, uh, but after I had started work on on the Eleventh Green, I, you know, I was very interested in some of the people he knew because he certainly knew a lot of these guys. And and one of the people he knew <laughs> was one of the uh, one of the alleged uh, fellows, one of the alleged old boys who was was involved in all this saucer business after the war. Um, the Harvard astronomer Donald Menzel. Uh, who, oh, who wow. was, you know, in in Office of Naval Intelligence, and my father met him during the war when he had come to Mexico along with a, a number of other very distinguished astronomers to open a new observatory there. And then my father later knew him in Boston and would see him when Don Donald came to Pasadena. Uh, and so, but he knew nothing of his secret work. I mean, I, I asked him very specifically about that and he knew nothing of Menzel's alleged um, alleged secret work for, for the clandestine organization. So, I, but as far as talking about UFOs with my father, no, I think he. I think he had concluded, though, that there was not a secret space program. Uh, I, th yeah. I think he had considered that that you know whether uh, the Air Force uh, uh, had had been conducting something like that, as as has been uh, suggested by by some writers. But um, in any case, wow, yeah, I, that's wild. I still don't know where I stand on that. Uh, yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean. Yeah, I was just going to say, I still don't know where I stand on the secret space program. I think I, I align with some of your father's beliefs. I don't think it, it it's happened. But then you have some great sort of uh, guys like, you know, historian and ufologist Richard Dolan, who's pretty convinced that there is some sort of a secret space program. So I don't know where I've 
which basket I've laid my eggs in yet. Um, now, Chris, you said you had sort of a personal paranormal story of uh, what do you call it the the B two bomber in Echo Park? <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, yeah, I'm embarrassed even to to say it, but I was I was working at a friend's house in Echo Park editing a movie about 20 years ago, and it had a really wonderful view. <laughs> And I was just looking out one day and, you know, this, this triangular aerial object was kind of floating outside and, and the perspective that I had on it was sort of looking down on it. And for some reason at the time, this is the aspect that was very interesting to me. I I didn't think twice about it. You know, I didn't think to question it. And I, I think in the back of my mind, I simply thought, oh yeah, it's just, it's just a V2 bomber in in Echo Park, you know, hovering (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not that it couldn't be, but you know. and then I don't know about covering, but yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was only years later uh, that I thought about that and, and and thought to myself, well, Jesus, that that's impossible. That couldn't have been a B two bomber hovering. So I mean, I'm quite convinced that it wasn't something that was kind of uh, normally visible. But it does seem as if I may have. And, and this is with the benefit of hindsight, but I, I think I may have been seeing into another <laughs> another layer of the fabric of many thicknesses, as the Sasquatch yeah. call it. Um, you know, something that that might have been impinging here from from some other dimensional realm. Uh, but when did that click in your brain? Do you remember? It, it clicked in my brain only after I only after I was deeply immersed in. <laughs> in the literature of, of ufology and exopolitics and, 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 uh, clandestine, uh, aerospace programs. I mean, oh. cause maybe they go hand in hand more than you think. I mean, it's so strange. It's so strange that, you know, you would sort of witness something like that. I, I don't know. I always like to make more of these than, than what's there, but, but, uh, there seems to be some sort of, uh, purpose behind who gets to see what i don't know well and it it does to me anyway it seems to underscore the idea that uh sometimes people will will have these experiences and they won't necessarily understand them at first but later they'll acquire a different significance or you know in some cases i think people's memories are they have screen memories or whatever you want to call it and, Mm -hmm. and they don't recall something until until it's the right time to do so you know and until whatever development of the personality and, and, uh, uh, whatever, whatever development has taken place that would make it valuable or relevant to understand the experience more deeply. And, you know, and I think you hear that in some of the more credible, uh, people talking about uh, so-called abduction experiences and women in particular who allegedly have been, uh, impregnated and how some of those screen memories fall away, not, not through hypnosis, but just through a more natural process of their somehow assimilating on some level, the knowledge of this, uh, these events and are able to kind of deal with them in an outer way or, or at a level, at a conscious level, able to deal with them at a conscious level, whereas formerly they, they weren't. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, as far as I know, I've never gotten anyone pregnant, but I am at the age where I might have an 18-year-old son or daughter show up on my doorstep any minute now. Uh, If you're listening, please give me a heads up. Um, Chris, uh, we're beating around the bush. We got to talk about this movie and the story of high strangeness that inspired it. But before we do that, we have a party game that we like to play with all of our guests, especially on the 4th of July. It's a, I'm going to go down a list of phenomenon, and you're going to tell me 
if you if 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 you're open to it, you're gonna say believe it. If you're not, you're gonna say bullshit. I'm Got sure it? I'm open to all of it, but I probably I probably well, have no personal experience <laughs> with any of it. That's fine. You Select haven't heard the list believe yet. Believe it. <laughs> <laughs> this is a game that we like to call bullshit or believe it. That's right. All right, Chris, on your mark. <laughs> I should okay. get. What, what you got? Is there a disclaimer at the yeah, top? Yeah, there's this? a disclaimer. Just that that uh, there are places of uh, geophysical anomalies that exist on this planet, and if you happen to be there, <laughs> you will sometimes experience uh, some highly unusual phenomena passing through. But fair enough. It doesn't doesn't mean that. <laughs> Every person on the street is necessarily going to encounter them. You know what? You still got to face the list, brother. Here we go. On your mark. <laughs> Quit <get> squirming. <laughs> Ghosts. Yes. Believe it. You got to say believe it or bullshit. I yell at all my guests. Okay. Believe it. UFOs. Believe it. Bigfoot. Believe it. Alien grays. Uh, believe it. Out of body experiences. Believe it. Demonic possession. Uh... Uh, believe it for some people. The Bermuda Triangle. Believe it. Alien abductions. Believe it. Loch Ness Monster. Believe it. Time travel. Believe it. <laughs> Mothman. Uh, don't know anything about Mothman. You got to pick one. I don't care if you've heard of him or not. You need to choose right now. <laughs> Where do you stand? I'm sure there's some basis of validity to it. Yes. Reincarnation. Yes, believe. ES, ESP. Yes. Haunted houses. Yes. The Illuminati. <clears throat> um. <laughs> well, we, we can I pass on any of these? No, you may not, Chris. <laughs> the Illuminati told me you may not. This is not paranormal. <laughs> Bullshit or believe it. The Illuminati. I have to pass. <laughs> I can't. Oh, boy. You know something, don't you? It's true it's not totally paranormal, but people like, you know, sometimes the Illuminati are are, are involved with aliens. So. They're, bl- they're blamed for everything. Yes. There's a face on Mars. Um, you know, I really don't know that much about that phenomenon. I've, I've heard so much, but I, I don't personally have a belief in it, no. Chris, you're too smart for this game. Uh, I need you to lower, <laughs> lower it a little bit. Skunk Ape. Uh Yes. Believe. He- believe it. Yes. Heaven. Oh, boy. Heaven. Uh, uh, well, uh, 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 that's, that's a misleading word. I mean, I, 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 uh, I certainly believe in the continuity of consciousness after physical death. And Chris, this is a rapid-fire game. <laughs> Bullshit or believe it, brother? Uh, not, not in the sort of pastoral form that it's generally, uh, uh, it's generally painted to be. Hell. Not in the form that it's generally painted to be. I think you don't like to swear. That's what I'm picking up on. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> sea serpents. I, I, it's not something I have any knowledge of, and I, you know, I just don't believe in things that I don't have any knowledge of. I, I, it's okay. This is just a Rorschach test. It's okay. fine. Just say bullshit or believe it. It's no one's going to hold you to this, sea except serpent. for me and Bryce. But sea serpents. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Poltergeists. Believe. Chupacabra. Believe. Atlantis. Believe. Life on other planets. Believe. Parallel dimensions. Believe. The apocalypse. Mm, No. Life after death. Believe. 
Oh, believe it. You're done. That was Fantastic. Amazing. Well I, you done. Know, Bryce, I think I understand why you guys are friends because <laughs> he came down heavy on the believe it. Uh, which reminds me, how did you guys meet? That's a great question. We we made a film together. We did a film together called Harry and Max. And it was uh, I came into audition for, for Chris's uh script and, and that was it that was uh set in stone when when did we shoot that and was that 2005 it was 2004 2003 we shot it came oh, out in 2004 right. and it was my favorite filmmaking experience of all time in all honesty it was just it was just a joy i mean oh man yeah it was i didn't know that that's amazing it, that's weird you haven't put him in any of your other movies. Well, my problem is, <laughs> <laughs> my problem is, I make so few films that, as much as I'd like to uh, work with uh, people I know and love and have worked with before and hold in high esteem, oftentimes I don't, you know, have a part, or or maybe you know, thirty years later I'll have a part. Or... You could have played the guy in like the checkpoint who let Campbell Scott into his father's neighborhood. Oh, the guy Isn't at the country a... club. No yeah, denim. Yeah, the country club. He could have been a country club. <laughs> country club. Guy. Chris, that was um, one of my favorite filming experiences too. And uh, you know, and it, it's been fun going on this journey with with Chris. Just like being able to, like when I found out he was doing a film about you know Sasquatch, it was on. And then, and then, boy, when he told me he was writing a script about sort of president's involvement in extraterrestrials, I was like, I was. Kind of just like wow. He has been is... talking about this movie for a couple of years oh, wow. now. He's been very excited. <laughs> uh, I'm very excited. Um, before we move on, I just want to say, Chupacabra, you were a firm believe it, and I appreciate that because most people go, "What?" Well, it's it's only belief, though. It's not it's not based on firsthand experience. I mean, many of the subjects that you po- pose to me, uh, when I say believe, it was not belief. It was knowing the reality of it but you you had had only a believe or not believe response possible so i had to say believe but i I don't like believing in things i like knowing that something is is real okay belief is the enemy settle down settle down john keel all right we're gonna take a break and when we come back we're gonna talk all about this movie and the story of high strangeness that inspired it uh we'll be back in just a moment All right, we're back with filmmaker Christopher Munch. Uh, Chris, uh, Bryce, you guys, uh, Bryce, you've been excited about this movie, The 11th Green, since we started this podcast. Um, Let's talk about the movie and but maybe to set it up, let's talk about the story that inspired it. And I can pass that off to either one of you guys. Chris, go ahead. Sure. Um, well, as both of you probably know, there's been a kind of urban legend around since the 1950s that on one or more occasions, Dwight David Eisenhower met with representatives of extraterrestrial races. And the origin of this uh, story seems to have been uh, the mystic and lecturer Gerald Light, who was really kind of a fascinating character. Supposedly, I think he studied with Gurdjieff and he uh, lectured around Southern California a lot. But he was writing a letter to uh, his the person, I believe, who was publishing his work, who uh, uh, Mead Lane, who I believe was at the uh, Borderland Sciences Foundation. In any case, um, the origin of, of that story seems to have been there, that, that Eisenhower was on a hunting trip uh, at uh, one of his cabinet members' uh, lodge in, in Georgia. 
and that he disappeared. Uh, and the cover story was that he had to have dental work done at night. <laughs> and uh, right. supposedly he in the woods. <laughs> supposedly he flew up to uh, he flew up to Murak Field, now known as Edwards Air Base Air Force Base in California, and uh, and had an encounter uh, or a meeting with. Uh, uh, with uh, a visitor from another world. Um, there was another... Mr. President, your your third molar is ready. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then a year or so later, supposedly, there was another meeting that took place at, at Holloman uh, Air Base, but much earlier than uh, the alleged footage that, that Emmenegger was being offered uh, in 1955 or so. And, and the researcher Art Campbell actually wrote extensively about this and, and dug up, um, you know, dug up, people who were alleged eyewitnesses even to to Eisenhower's visit to the base that day um so um so the meeting the meeting that took place between uh, Eisenhower and these entities was about what well it was it was about the idea that we had come into the possession of certain technology uh by way of crashed objects and it was an offer of guidance of how to utilize this constructively, mm. um, yeah, which was apparently rejected uh, because we felt. Actually, let me, if I may, would you like me to read you a, a short paragraph, a short description of what happened uh, from a mediumistic source? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> um, let's see. But this 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 folklore, you know, has been around. Uh, one of the interesting aspects, I believe, of the visit to Holloman is that a couple of the members of his party on his plane on Columbine three, uh, Lockheed super constellation, which was his air force one, um, was that Arthur Godfrey was there as a, uh, who was involved in the continuity of government plans and who apparently along with people like Edward R. Murrow with, were charged with re pre, -re <laughs> sorry, pre recording, uh, soothing messages. <laughs> Oh, no way. <laughs> to play over the radio. The golden the, disc of Edward R. Murrow. <laughs> <laughs> Soothing messages to play in the event of, of nuclear Armageddon. So, Whoa. Oh, wow. Oh, I see. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. Ar Arthur Godfrey was, was, on this, uh, was on this trip to Holloman. Uh, in any case, something else I came across recently. There, there are a couple of mediumistic sources that talk about um, – that talk about uh, – you know Eisenhower having met with aliens. One of them is is the raw material, the the book, or, mm. um, um, uh, the Law of One. Uh, it was called, but it's a fascinating, you know, a fascinating body of work. Uh, I I was never able to penetrate it when I was younger because it. You know the uh, the syntax is so dense, and it's it's uh, all these occult writings. Anything that stuff is so tough to yeah. really read. That I need someone who's uh, personable, who and smart to just tell me about it, basically, because I can't crack that stuff. That stuff is hard. It really is. I tried to get through the the, the emerald tablets of, of thought, and you're just like, wow, okay. Oh yeah. I, I mean, and as crazy as all this channel material is, it somehow, some way, seems to always be involved in the changing of history. So you know, um, yeah. as, as as crazy as this is, there's always profound. Uh, things that take place after the fact. It's crazy. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, in in the raw group, uh, Don Elkins, who was the questioner for all of this material, and Elkins was a very interesting character. He was an engineer and a pilot who, in the 1960s, uh, set out to make uh, mediumistic contact with extraterrestrial visitors by training uh, students um, in his um, in an academic environment to do this, and they they produced some really interesting material. He he wrote a book in in the seventies called Secrets of the UFO uh, that contained transcripts of a lot of this material, and, and you can buy the recordings as well, or the recording that he compiled of some of this information. But in any case, in let's see, session twenty four, February fifteenth, nineteen eighty one. He asks, uh, one thing that's been bothering me, I was just reading about, uh, is not too important, but I would be really interested in knowing if Dwight Eisenhower met with either the Confederation or the Orion Group in the 1950s. And Ra replies, I am Ra. The one of which you speak met with thought forms which were in... in just to clarify, I'm Ra. Yeah, okay. <laughs> thought forms which are indistinguishable from third density. This was a test. We, the Confederation, wish to see what would occur if this extremely positively oriented and simple congenial person with no significant distortion towards power happened across peaceful information and the possibilities which might append therefrom. We discovered that this entity did not feel that those under his care could deal with the concepts of other beings and other philosophies. Thus, an agreement reached then allowed him to go his way, ourselves to do likewise, and a very quiet campaign, as we have heard you call it, be continued alerting your peoples to our presence gradually. Events wow. have overtaken this plan. So the the last sentence that's wild. The last sentence is a little ominous. Events have overtaken this plan, but I believe that indeed that that's what happened. You know, there was a big big delay in the information uh, becoming you know becoming public. The information being what exactly the existence of uh, uh, of these other beings and philosophies. Yeah. And who are, according to this medium, uh, who who are the Confederation and who are the Orion Group? What are those two uh, conglomerates? Well, I believe they they <laughs> they had postulated that the Confederation were uh, a confederation of, I guess, more positively oriented uh, consciousnesses, uh, mm. some of whom were were visiting, but raw themselves, that group. I believe stated that they were physiologically pre present, you know, on our world uh, in pre-dynastic Egypt, and that the reason that they returned in this particular fashion and communicated in a more mediumistic fashion is because they saw the errors of their ways and the way in which uh, they, you know, had been regarded as uh, um, um, gods or, or, you know, placed uh, in that category in such a way that it, it wasn't beneficial in the way they had hoped, you know, to, to pre-dynastic Egyptian civilization. So they were, they were staying back at least as far as being, you know, physically present. Um, well, and what I love about your movie is you sort of frame it in the, <clears throat> in the role of this guy uh, played wonderful by Campbell Scott, a guy named uh, who's sort of a, an investigative reporter and uh, whose father happens to be uh, a retired air force general of, of Eisenhower who, who passed away. And, and it's sort of that kicks off the whole movie as he's going to sort of um, well, first of all, deal with his father's affairs and sort of, you know, which, which directly sort of connect to what his interests are in these uh, in these covert energies used to sort of 
uh, move into the commercial world like you were talking about that article. So it, 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 it's a great way to kick off the film, I think. Well, yeah, and he's he's reporting on this story at the time uh, of this fictional uh, aerospace company who's attempting to to migrate this, uh, and 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 that fascinated me. You know, what would happen if a company did that, and and if they a company, in other words, using uh, retro uh, technology taken from a uh, a UFO and putting it into an airplane, a totally. commercial airplane. Is it was it a commercial airplane in the film? Forgive me, or what, I can't remember. Is it was a was it a military plane? Well, that's the thing. Uh, the story proposes that this technology existed in the black world and that they were attempting to migrate it into a commercial product that would you know, benefit. Right. Humanity. That's what I thought. And, and, and by black world, we're talking about the black book, like, uh, military technology, like the secret, the secret shit that they're building in the military, yeah, special right? access programs, black budgets, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, yeah, the type of, of, uh, carved out area of a special access program that was described in, uh, Eric Davis's notes, uh, about, uh, you know, uh, what, what, uh, Admiral Tom Wilson had told him about his inability to access, uh, this particular carved out section of a, of a special access program, which he, uh, knew about whose existence he knew about, but which he had been unable to obtain any information about. Wow. So how did this movie come about? How did you decide, okay, the next movie I'm going to make is the 11th green. Um, I, I think, as a filmmaker, what interested me most was more the emotional what if involving President Eisenhower, you know, and how would this man uh, 10 years or so after his presidency have reflected back on such meetings had they occurred? You know, would he have had any regrets about not accepting the offer, you know, about insisting that we needed to maintain our military advantage? You know, how how would this have weighed on him? And uh, the idea of... Um, Eisenhower, who was not really known to have been somebody who looked back a great deal, um, him being in a place where he was sort of forced to be more uh, introspective and uh, go down this this road um, where he starts having dreams about this representative of another civilization, this E.T. that he had encountered back in the 50s, this tall, uh, tall blonde uh you know, sort of a uh, 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 why can't I think of his name? Thor. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Valiant Thor. I wanted to say uh, Valiant Thor. Yeah, he's a bit of a Valiant Thor type, a bit of a Venusian type. Exactly. Um, yeah, which was cool because I always pictured. I, when Eisenhower met with aliens, it would be with the Greys for some reason. I don't know why. I was interested in why you chose to go the. I guess it's a more peaceful representation of alien life, perhaps this like Venusian style guy. But like, did that come from research or did that come from just you, your artistic uh, liberty wanting to how did you decide how you wanted to represent alien life in this movie? I think it, it was a liberty that I took in in consultation with some of my advisors. And uh, it, it seemed like. Yeah, it seemed like the best way to go about it uh, rather than uh, because I think we all have such strong reactions to seeing gray aliens. I mean, not actual gray aliens, but seeing representations. I think I saw one one time and my reaction was pretty strong. Actually, I came across that other mediumistic passage I was going to read to you. Do you want me to read it? It's not, it's not long. Yeah, please. Okay. Absolutely. Um, 
let's see, they were hybrid beings of a sort. And what was offered to your world was the opportunity, of course, for the revelation of their existence, for interaction between your society and theirs, toward the perpetuation of your society and the guidance of your society in a positive direction. This was turned down for fear that your society would panic and it would upset the balance of your sociological, religious, and economic structures. Now, of course, there were also what you may call ulterior motives to turning them down based on the idea of certain individuals and families on your planet that have been placed in charge of those institutions mm. and who did not want to see the status quo upset because of their own concepts of what represents power and stability for themselves personally. Nevertheless, it was known at the time that your world had already gotten a hold of extraterrestrial technology from more than one ship that had crashed on your planet, and thus then what was being offered was the ability to guide you in how to utilize this technology in a positive and constructive way for your people. But again, this was turned down because it was felt at the time that what was required was a technological and military advantage over those with whom you were at war. So thus then the idea of interaction was suspended and altered in a different way, although it was understood that certain kinds of interactions would still continue for a variety of purposes that we will not go into too deeply at the moment. So wow. while there was no official interaction, there were unofficial interactions from time to time for, for a variety of reasons, some of which fit the agenda of the people of your world, some of which fit the agenda of the beings from other worlds. And, and do you think, I mean, and just sort of hypothesizing, do you think that these extraterrestrials or these visitors wanted anything in return? Well, that's a good question because it's been it's been suggested that you know there were treaties made uh, that allowed certain types of abductions, for instance, to take place uh, in exchange for certain types of technology. And I really don't know. I, I really don't know what that all is about. I don't have enough information to be able to comment mm. on it. Um, I I was approaching it from for my film from the standpoint that it was a more altruistic type of offer being yeah. made on the part of uh, this. Well, and I think that's a really smart choice because then it's placed, you you really put the moral conundrum on the leader, you know, and deciding on how, you know, the president deciding whether or not they're going to like let the cat out of the bag, which you do with uh set in present day in the film. There's another, just a character called the president, but I think we all recognize who that president is. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, has a stark, uh, startling resemblance to Barack Obama, which I, this is the part of the movie, and I don't want to spoil too much, that my mind, my mind was blown <laughs> when <laughs> Obama came into this oh movie. Oh my God. Chris, Michael texted me last night with a, with a picture of, uh, of Obama putting on the headphones going into his golf meditation. He said, I'm, I was not ready for this. <laughs> Obama like, is using a golf app to meditate and make contact with Eisenhower in the past. I mean, this movie is wild. Chris. Oh, yeah. it I have is it right here. Obama film. is time traveling via a golf app. I was not properly prepared for this interview. <laughs> It's amazing. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're in for it, man. Just and sit back and enjoy. Bryce, he's on vacation. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> oh, my God. That, that was great. I mean, I love that you're just making this, like, earnest drama about, like, the, the biggest, like, wildest high strangeness topics there are which is like extraterrestrial contact black book operation like i mean there's there's like and how the leaders of the free world deal with that 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 heavy load you know but yeah i I was just like no one else is making a movie like this no no one 
hands down. Well, what was appealing about the idea of uh, having two presidents together is that really, you know, it's an entry point into exopolitics that only presidents could could give you, you know, and, and if we accept the idea uh, that these guys don't really have a very full picture, and, and I kind of do accept that, um, and I think the, the line that Ike says, Ike says in the film, uh, you know, they give you just enough, just enough to convince you that the secrecy needs to continue. And often they don't give you the true reasons for the secrecy. I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting stuff, you know, and, and I mean, there have been presidents, historically speaking, like Jimmy Carter, who went into office professing a desire to declassify as much as possible of that. And then who, after they were in office, also allegedly said that they felt that information had been left from them so or had had been withheld from them mm. um so so it is very interesting to think about the institution of the american presidency being this kind of exalted uh office you know into which we place all of our aspirations and you know all of our uh, uh highest values really and and Generally speaking, with some exceptions, we we expect the person occupying the office to sort of uh, behave in a certain way. Um, but to consider that something this important would not be fully available, you know, to a person in that position is is quite intriguing, and that that it, that it was set up that way, with the understanding that the control of the subject uh, needed to be completely autonomous and, and needed to be apart from government and that the government would remain just this sort of figurehead that we generically project all of our uh, frustration onto when wow. it comes with when it comes to being denied information. I heard a really fascinating theory um, uh, when I was in Roswell, actually, from uh, our tour guide, which is this guy named Dennis Balthazar, who's um, just studied everything Roswell and uh, knows that city backwards and forwards, knows the Roswell crash story up and down. And he was talking about how, you know, in his opinion, the president does the president is a public servant that serves between four and eight years and does not need to know about the existence of, of ETs. So unless there's a crash that happens on their watch, they, they're not going to be told about it, which I, which for some reason that mm. theory kind of stuck with me when he told us that on the tour. And I was like, that kind of makes sense, you know, that, 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 that there's someone in the Pentagon or the military is like, listen, we don't need to tell this person who's here for only, you know, maximum of eight years that there's like that, that. Yeah. we, that this we have had crashes and we've recovered bodies they don't need to know unless they need to know well that's just the thing these generals don't come and go they stay you know and yeah. and, and 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 these these private companies that that have access to these these funds these black budget funds they don't they don't come and go so often either you know they um these these are career um aeronautics engineers and and these are career military uh, personnel. I mean, so yeah, it, Chris, you always said, and, and I thought it was great. The apparatus for compartmentalizing secretive information was formed perfectly after the, after world war two. And I think that's so poignant as well. Well, it existed, it existed during world war two as a result of the, the bomb project, you know, in right. the United States and those national laboratories existed and the, um, the level of security that was needed to, to contain 
uh, a project like that existed there. Um, you know, uh, interestingly, uh, uh, the engineer and scientific statesman, Vannevar Bush, uh, who was reputed to have been a part of the post-war group that, that dealt with this, um, he described in, in detail in his memoir in the late 60s, uh, the way in which he went around Congress and went around the military directly to uh, uh, President Roosevelt to form the OSRD, which came up with a number of technological innovations, but was also the vehicle through which the Manhattan District or the Manhattan Project got underway, you know, to build the bomb. And so you could really imagine in reading this description how similarly a post-war working group that dealt with recovered objects or, or uh, you know, extraterrestrial contact uh, could have been kept secret and could have been formed in such a way as to be or as to become eventually completely autonomous so that uh, a president, for instance, uh, would not uh, have any trouble maintaining plausible deniability of, about that, right. you know? So I, I, my feeling is that, uh, after the Truman administration, every subsequent president knew very much less and less. And Eisenhower still knew a lot because of his previous roles. He was, you know, the Supreme allied commander in, in Europe, uh, head of allied expeditionary forces in the war. And then he was, the head of of, uh, of NATO, the first head of NATO, and uh, so he he had every reason to to know a thing or two. And uh, interestingly, there actually was some uncorroborated correspondence uh, released a few years ago from the British National Archives that describes a meeting that he had had with Churchill uh, on the occasion of uh, an alleged uh, contact between a, an RAF reconnaissance plane and. Uh, you know, a UFO uh, during the war. And Churchill apparently responded that uh, it was so shocking that it needed to be kept secret for 50 years. Wow. <laughs> which which kind of aligns with, you know, the core, core stories of ufology, you know, as far as uh, humanity's readiness to assimilate this information. But. Wow, what a wild, now fully mythological time in our history. You know, yeah. it really feels like more and more. Seems like it, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and 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 it does seem like things really got increasingly secretized and and uh, uh, increasingly secretized and and inaccessible. Truly, I mean, it, it was. I think Ben Rich made the comment that these technologies exist, but they're so far uh, buried within these saps that. It would take, I forget what he said, an act of God or something to pry them loose and that it's right. easier to reinvent them in, in the open uh, science than it is to try and migrate them. He also said we have the ability to take E.T. home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But there, there was an interest. I don't know if you ever read it. There was an interesting article that Norio Hayakawa, I think, wrote about that and the fact that he often said that at various, uh, right. various presentations. Sure. One of the things that I feel like the film plays upon is the idea that some of these secrets can survive uh, within families in a yes. way, you know, and I wonder, do you hold out hope for some deathbed confessions of some sons or daughters or grandkids of some of these old timers that may have passed some of this information along? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I mean, it, 
one interesting popularization of this idea was the uh, the miniseries Taken, you know, the the Steven Spielberg miniseries. Oh, yeah. And the fellow who you know who wrote that, uh, Les Bohm, was a real scholar. Uh, and the early episodes did a, I thought, a really good job of depicting uh, the aftermath of Roswell. Um, some of the later episodes became extremely speculative, but. One thing that that show did very well is dramatize the dynastic nature of of the clandestine organization, and indeed the the transformation of these successive generations of people charged with upholding the secrets, and uh, the way in which finally one of them, you know, the, I guess the son of of the fellow who was such a hardliner who who chillingly shot his wife in the back when he was concerned that she would reveal something. Um, you know, he said it, it has to stop. So in that story, uh, in that popularization, it was depicted as being, uh, something that changed over, over time. And yet we have other informants who tell us, uh, that, uh, families who have, uh, been part of the clandestine organization, you know, for a long time, uh, that it that it does stay it does stay with them you know what i love about this is god it's just it's so detailed and it seems like chris you took a journey down the rabbit hole for lack of a better term do you think that you're you're still in that rabbit hole do you think you've come out the other side or are you still interested in still researching and and sort of studying the ufo uap phenomenon and and its implications with exopolitics is this something that still interests you or or are you moving on to other subjects now? No, it, it still very much interests me, and I, I certainly am always reading. Uh, I think what has changed is that I have become slightly more discerning, so I'm less apt to kind of go down rabbit holes. And, and there's some types of material that really are, are rather depressing, and, and you kind of don't want to dwell too much you know in them um you kind of uh want to take those in in very small doses but absolutely i I find it i find it fascinating and and i still find the whole subject of of breakthrough energy technology and and free energy and the idea again of society's organic readiness to assimilate that because i am convinced at this point that the reason the technologies have not been uh, appearing is not because of suppression and not because they don't exist, but because of the readiness factor. Uh, that that interests wow. me hugely. The movie is called The Eleventh Green. When and where can our listeners watch it? And what else do you? What's the final thing you want them to know about the movie? Well, let's see. The Eleventh Green now is playing in a theatrical at home uh, run, and. It can be found, uh, well, the easiest way is probably just to go to my website, ChristopherMunch.com, and that has a link directly to the page where you can can watch the film. Um, And as far as what I'd like the audience to know, uh, I guess I just would hope that in some way it stimulates their imagination and maybe possibly... uh, thinking a little bit outside of whatever preconceptions they might have about the subject um, or have been, you know, indoctrinated into over the years through media, through fantasy films and, um, you know, films that, that are less, less than truthful in the way they, they depict things. Uh, But just to come to it with an open mind and consider that there is some factual historical underpinnings to, to the story and it, it could well have happened. 
I love it. I do too, man. I think I think we're just to add on top of that. We're we're so lucky to have a voice like yours uh, representing not not only Sasquatch, but but sort of this uh, this UFO UAP topic as well. It, it, it's such a such a grounded and, and wonderful film. And and you know, if you, for those listeners out there, I just you know, you guys will love it. I recommend to go to Chris's site, to click on the link, and and watch it you guys won't regret it it's, it's truly a one-of-a-kind get film. ready guys it it's gonna blow your mind <laughs> or, or, as, or as richard roper would say take your edible 45 minutes before and then <laughs> click the link <laughs> <laughs> uh, i want to thank chris for joining us chris bigfoot is found in the woods but where can our listeners find you christophermunch.com you mentioned and uh are you on social media yeah, um, let's see. The 11th Green uh, has uh, social media pages. Um, they can find it on uh, the 11th Green Film on Facebook. They can find it on Antarctic Pictures on uh, Instagram or uh, and uh, or actually uh, Instagram. I think it's just Antarctic P, and Twitter is Antarctic Pictures or the other way around. In any case. Um, it's there, and and my uh, my website christophermunch.com has has information about it as well. Fantastic, Perfect. I love it. Um, and I've heard from a little bird that you have a few Bigfoot stories. Is this true? Well, during the course of making uh, letters from the big man, I had a lot of a lot of experiences that were very interesting. I, I think probably the most interesting ones involved anomalous sounds. You know, okay. Well, don't go any further, <laughs> hold it right there. Because we're gonna ha- hold ourselves a little after party on the other side right now. As you're done listening to this, you can go over to the other side, and we're going to have a little after party with Chris. We're going to hear some of these Bigfoot stories and maybe talk a little bit about letters from the big man. Uh, so join us over there. Um, follow us on Instagram, Bigfoot Collectors Club, on Twitter at Bigfoot Pod. And uh, merch, if you want T-shirts, head over to uh, wearecampfire.media, click shop, and blast away. Uh, please give me a follow on Instagram at McMills. Bryce is Mr. Bryce Johnson, and Riley is Peace Drone. Uh, personal plugs, uh, new season or a brand new show, uh, Perry Mason. I show up in a couple episodes. Check it out on HBO or HBO Max. Yeah. Uh, and also the remainder of the episodes of Robot Chicken that I wrote on are uh, airing right now Woo-hoo, on check Adult Swim. So check that shit out. Um, Bryce, anything to plug? I'm working on something pretty fascinating. Can't wait to tell you guys all about it. I bet Whoa, you have your ideas. Another top secret project. Um, do us a favor. Go over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review like this one. The best podcast I've ever listened to by <laughs> T-Bents. On my third time binging through every episode, and it just gets better and better. Oh, wow. The banter is hilarious. The chemistry couldn't be better, and the stories are fascinating and dig deeper than most paranormal podcasts that just hit on the surface level stories and accounts. Also, Thank the you, only T-Bent. podcast... The only podcast that I support over on Patreon because I just can't get enough. Love that. Listen and join the club. Thank you. If you give us a five-star review, we might read it on the show. Um, We are going to take a little summer break, as is our tradition. We'll be back 
with a brand new episode in two weeks. But fear not, because next week we're going to give you a little Patreon sampler. So if you're not a member of the other side, it'll be new to you. And if you are a member of the other side, we're going to give you a new drop as well. So everybody gets something new next week. But uh, but we'll be back here in two weeks with a brand new episode. Hopefully Riley will get out of that traffic jam and he'll be back here <laughs> uh, until then. I was just going to say, if you're not a, if you're not a Patreon member, give us a chance. We're doing all kinds of fun stuff over there. Like uh, we have a movie club, we have a book club and we have sort of more off the cuff discussions about topics of high strangeness uh, where we'll even be continuing our wonderful discussion with uh, filmmaker Christopher Munch about some of his uh, more anomalous Bigfoot encounters. So join us on over there if you haven't already. It's available right now. Okay. It's a fun time. Uh, at any rate, until next time we meet, good night and go get regressed. <laughs> All right, I'm going to stop this recording. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray. Our theme song is Come Alone by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast to more listeners. To support the show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club and unlock multiple reward episodes every month. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.